Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chapter Brothers. My name is Nick Ackerman. And my name is Kevin Ackerman. All right, and today we are going to continue on with the drawing of the three. We're going to um, start a new section. Uh, but before that, Kevin, it's time for the Stephen King trivia. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm supposed to do but Oh, good. Anyway. We can take turns with the, <laughs> the sting. <laughs> yeah, right. Take two. Nah, anyway. Um... So, in 1981, as I said, um, Stephen King released a couple of books. Um, and um, this next book, in, in the order, I had never heard of until I was uh, reading about it. Um, because it is a nonfiction book, Kevin. 19? It is his first nonfiction work. Do you know um, what it is? I am going to say Dance Macabre. Yes, you are correct. That's that's the one that I, I always saw in the library, and it's got like a blue cover with like a purple, like neon Stephen King face, and he's looking all creepy. <laughs> and I, I was all oh, I really? was I like flipped through it, but I was like, oh, it's nonfiction, and I'm not that interested. So what is, what is Dance Macabre about? <laughs> so it's a uh, really interesting. It was released uh, April twentieth of nineteen eighty eighty one. Sorry, um, this is right after Road Work. I uh, was released, and um, we'll get to another book in this year uh, next week. Uh, but Dance Macabre is a nonfiction book that basically his um, uh, what was his name? Bill Hamilton? Bill Thompson, sorry. his um, Mr. King's um, publisher at the time wanted him to do a book, a nonfiction work um, about the Bill called me and said, why don't you do a book about the entire horror phenomenon as you see it? Books, movies, radio, TV, the whole thing. We'll do it together if you want. The concept intrigued and frightened me at the same time. So that was a quote from uh, Stephen King. Hmm. And um, it sounds really interesting. Like, he kind of goes all the way back. And it also, it seems like it's written in his, um, you know, his way of writing Hmm. the argument and the afterword and stuff like that. Uncle Steve. Um, And it's just... It's just like a whole book of that, and uh, it sounds amazing. It goes nice. all the way back to Victorian times. So here, here's another question in the Stephen King trivia. Mm-hmm. Um, the book starts kind of with the classic um, horror tropes of the Victorian era. Uh, which three um, books did he look at that had certain horror, um, I don't know if trope is the right word, or um, kind of mainstays, or... Uh, Let's see. I feel like I've got to go with... Think of Halloween. Exactly, yeah. That's, that's what, that was where my head was at. Uh, I'm going to say uh-huh. it's got to be the uh, Dracula, Bram Stoker. Uh, yep. It's got to be Frankenstein, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, Shelley. And uh-huh. uh, it's got to be either the Wolfman or the Phantom of the opera so i'm gonna go with the wolfman but i'm not sure if that's a book oh well you've got the right uh monster you know the, the alter egos though oh oh uh dr jekyll and mr hyde yes absolutely nice. good job so it kind of talks about those and um different uh yeah I, I don't i i was reading through this um summary synopsis of uh the work i was like actually i really need to read this because then he goes into as um the publisher had asked radio tv uh movies all throughout time um just some of the ones well, he talks about when he found his father's uh copy of hp lovecraft's uh mm. the lurker in the shadows and that got him kind of into the horror genre mm. um oh also <laughs> just there was a lot of confusion with this book when it was released in 1981 because um, uh, it's called Dance Macabre. Um, but the Spanish version of The Stand was called um, where is it? Uh, La Danza de la Muerte. Oh, uh, Dance, Dance of Death. Of Death. Death. So, so there was like a lot of confusion. And in Brazil, it was called Adanca de Muerte uh, for The Stand. Um, and apparently in France, um, The Night Shift was released as dance macabre in 1980. Hmm. Um, so, so they had to like give it a subtitle in it anyway. Um, so that was just some weird things about it. But, um, one other thing I wanted to mention. So yeah, he goes through all these, um, 
some of the TV shows he talks about Thriller, The Outer Limits, The Twilight Zone, Dark Shadows, and Night Gallery. Um, some of the movies he talks about, um, I, Mar- I Marry a Monster from Outer Space, The Horror of Party Beach, and The Rocky, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, nice. Um, Love Rocky Horror Picture uh, Show. Amongst many others, it's basically him kind of uh, critiquing other works and kind of how it influences him. It sounds really cool. Mm. He talks about Shirley Jackson. So um, some books. He oh talks yeah, he about. loves Shirley Jackson. Yeah, um, and just some other ones. Do 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 do. There's a much longer list, but Shirley Jackson Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Mm. Um, Richard Matheson's The Shrinking Man. Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a bunch. Uh, Rosemary's Baby, The Body Snatchers. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, he, he kind of just does a review. But uh, the last thing I just wanted to mention was he classifies uh, the whole genre that he's talking about into three descending levels Ooh. of like of this whole genre of the, the dance macabre. Um, what do you think they are? These are like three words, one of which I've already been using. And is always used with Stephen King. Um, let's see. If you went to a bookstore, where would his books be found? What would the? I mean, fiction. Um, I mean, well, horror, speculative fiction. Horror, 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 okay. horror is what I'm going for. So horror is like the second level. Okay. Um, so before horror is this other word that's relatively similar to horror in some of its letters. Hmm. Oh, in some of his um, letters. Uh, yeah. uh, horrendous. So he describes uh, blank. So the first one is, I'm just going to say this yeah, without the word. He, just, he describes blank as the finest element of the three, and the one he strives hardest to maintain in his own writing. Setting many examples, he defines blank as the, the suspenseful moment in horror before the actual monster is revealed. So what, do you, what word do you think he's talking about? Hmm. Suspenseful moment right before the monster is revealed. The I don't know. Terror. Terror. Ah, so I got the, caught up on the yeah. H. I was trying to fit the H into yeah, yeah, other things. The end of the word. That's yeah. the same. So it goes terror, then horror, and then finally, um, King finally compares blank with the gag reflex, a bottom level cheap gimmick, which he admits he often revort, resorts to in his own fiction if necessary. Confessing, and this is a quote from him, I recognize terror as the finest emotion, and so I will try to terrorize the reader. But if I find that I cannot terrify, I will try to horrify. And if I find that I cannot horrify, I'll go for the gross out. I'm not proud. (laughs) So Uh, the word he's looking for, any guess? Uh, It's got to be either, let's see, um... Not slasher, not grotesque, not, um... Let's see. It's got to be. Um, my brain is not working today. I don't know. What is it? Uh, uh, revulsion. 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 Oh, I wasn't going in that direction. Yeah. So from terror to heart of revulsion, like the gross mm. out, like, oh no, there's like the blood finally. Like, so, like, th- that's kind of the arc of a horror book, movie, TV series. It's like, first you're scared. Then you realize what you're scared of. That's the horror. And then, oh, and then this is like the, the result of that horror is now there's blood everywhere. Mm. Or dead. <laughs> what was um, the word I was thinking? So, yeah, it sounds really interesting. And I think I'd like mm. to read. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll have to get it. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, Dance Macabre. Very interesting. All right. Um, huh. So, Kevin. So, where did, um, where did we leave our friends, uh, Roland and Eddie? Yeah, Roland and Eddie. And uh, Susan, right? Still, uh, mm, let's well, see. Not Susan. What's what the heck's her name? Uh, the flight attendant, Jane. Yeah, the flight, Jane. Oh my gosh. Yes, Jane Dorning. <laughs> I was going to say Susan's um, from Roland's backstory. Oh, no, that's somebody completely different. All right, so they have been um, kind of going back and forth with the three of them, and the plane has finally landed. Correct. Okay. Yes, the seven twenty-seven so came in low and smooth. Yep. Section 7 of Contact and Landing, chapter mm-hmm. 3. Um, why don't you read? Sure. <clears throat> 3A, the man with the two-tone eyes, straightened up, and Jane saw, actually saw, a snub-nosed Uzi in his hands before she realized it was nothing but his duty declaration card and a little zipper bag of the sorts that men sometimes use to hold their passports. 
The flames settled like silk. Letting out a deep, shaking shudder, she tightened the red top of the thermos. Call me an asshole, she said in a low voice to Susie, buckling the crossover belts now that it was too late. She had told Susie what she suspected on the final approach, so Susie would be ready. You have every right. No, Susie said. You did the right thing. I overreacted, and dinner's on me. Like hell it is. Don't look at him. Look at me. Smile, Janie. Jane smiled, (laughs) nodded, wondering what in God's name was going on now. You were watching his hands, Susie said, and laughed. Jane joined in. I was watching what happened to his shirt when he bent over to get his bag. He's got enough stuff over under there to stock a Woolworth's notions counter. Only I don't think he's carrying the kind of stuff you could buy at Woolworth's. So, yeah. So at this at this point, the two of them are like like keeping trying to keep up appearances for the rest of the passengers, but and also trying not to rouse uh, suspicion from Eddie. But definitely, Jane is like, okay, he doesn't have a gun. It's fine. And then Susie's like, up, up, up. He's got something. Uh huh. Yeah, there's definitely something uh, more to this guy. Like, okay, maybe uh, he's not a terrorist, but he's got you know. Clearly, he's a mule. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's clearly got something weird going on under his shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Woolworths. Woolworths. Well, I remember Woolworths. Woolworths. Uh, five and really dime. Otherwise. Yeah, the five and ten. Five and ten. Five and dime. Woolworths. Yeah. There's all just a bunch of random things there, and. Um, do you know when Woolworths kind of went out of business? Uh, I want to say the nineties, because I remember go- there was Woolworths, uh, in Rutherford when we were growing up and I remember going there for like mm-hmm. Halloween decorations and whatnot and like candy and like little like tchotchkes and little things like that. Just random stuff. Random yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, well, here's the thing is Woolworths didn't really go. Oh, it's still around. Away, they just changed. Oh, I, I found this fascinating as I was reading. I was like, "Oh, really? That's that's kind of cool." Is they realized that their store had all these different departments and no real like vision. I mean, it mm. lasted for many, many hundreds, not hundreds of years, but like true, basically a just a general years. store that conglomerated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, let's see. It was on the New York Stock Exchange from 1912 to 1997. Oh, okay. So that's not that far off. Oh, okay. To this business that had been around since 1974, they decided uh, Woolworth to focus on um, sporting goods. Oh, okay. All right. And um, they joined with this company who was very small at the time, but has since gotten bigger. Um, the people who work there look like referees. Oh, um, the what is it? Footlocker? Footlocker, yeah. Mm. So Woolworths is still around. It's just, it's Footlocker now. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. I didn't realize that. There you go. But yeah, you would go to Woolworths all the time. What's the notions counter? I want notions counter. Is. I feel like Little that's shot-chies. that's kind of what we're talking about. Of the you know sort of like the bric a brac and the the random things. Yeah. Unless mm-hmm. notions, like maybe you, notions is like like women's type things specifically. I don't know. Mm. Maybe it's like rings and like other jewelry and stuff. Mm. Compacts and Did makeup. They have jewelry at Woolworths. They must have. Anyway, point anyway. is, she's onto them. True. I feel like right. it was like pre-dollar store in and it didn't have like that whole dollar store gimmick that i imagine woolworth's being like you could get like school supplies there if you wanted yeah pretty much mm-hmm. it, was, it was like a smaller like walmart yeah kind of you know but not. it just had like everything yeah. you know like oh you need a notebook pencil and a stuffed animal and maybe some pantyhose, mm. you know, whatever. Yeah, I don't think they sold food there, though. Right? No, yeah, I don't. I, like, I remember like candy, but not food. Definitely candy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah sort of like a general store. Yeah. Woolworths. Anyway. Anyway. So. Um, so. Um, Jane realizes that he's not a terrorist, but a drug smuggler. Mm. All right. Thank God for small favors. Yet in a way, she hated it. He had been cute. Not much, but a little. Mm-hmm. So now we go on to section eight. He still doesn't see, the gunslinger thought with anger and dawning desperation. Gods! Eddie had bent to get the papers he needed for the ritual, and when he looked up, the army, army woman was staring at him, her eyes bulging, her cheeks as white as the paper things on the backs of the seats. The silver tube with the red top, which he had at first taken for some kind of canteen, was apparently a weapon. She was holding it up between her breasts now. Roland thought that in a moment or two, she would either throw it 
or spin off the red top and shoot him with it. Then she relaxed and buckled her harness, even though the thump told both the gunslinger and the prisoner the air carriage had already landed. She turned to the army woman she was sitting with and said something. The other woman laughed and nodded. But if that was a real laugh, the gunslinger thought he was a river toad. Um, the gunslinger wondered how the man whose mind had become temporary home for the gunslinger's own ka could be so stupid. Some of it was what he was putting into his body, of course. One of this world's versions of devil weed. Some, but not all. He was not soft and unobservant like the others, but in time, he might be. They are as they are because they live in the light, the gunslinger thought suddenly. That light of civilization you were taught to adore above all other things. They live in a world which has not moved on. Mm. Um, I love that so, quote. Oh. I highlighted that whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that's a really interesting one, kind of like where Roland has been and what he's seen and now how like soft the world is because we live in the lights. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I feel like Roland is kind of like realizing that um yeah, in the next part, uh if this is what uh people became in such a world, Roland was not sure he didn't prefer the dark. Um that was before the world moved on, people said, and there are uh, said in his own world, and it was always said in tones of bereft sadness, but it was perhaps sadness without thought, without consideration. So basically, it's Roland is kind of grew up in this society that had to be constantly on guard and constantly uh, prepared for any sort of danger that might come his way. Whereas now he's looking around at Eddie's world in you know circa 1986, 87 or so, and he's like, "This world is soft. These people are just sitting around. <laughs> Nobody has a care in the world." And Eddie doesn't notice two, uh, a quarter of the things that uh, he sees. Let alone just you mm -hmm. know the, the the border around the window that uh, made me uh, scream, but yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, they're going to get into more of that. Uh, but real quick, I just want to go back to. Uh, he's just so upset at Eddie. He's like, oh, yeah. it's like, come on, dude, um, because he realizes what uh, the woman's doing, and he's dead on. He's like, either she's going to. Spin that off. It looks like a canteen. It is a canteen. Yeah, it is a canteen and a weapon. And, uh, He's right on both counts. Yeah, he is. He nailed it. Um, so the gunslinger is always right. Mm. <laughs> Certainly the most observant, um, that's for sure. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Well, I think uh, Jane's pretty observant as well. True. Well, um, she doesn't have all the facts, whereas <laughs> Roland is the only one who's, you know, technically almost like the omniscient narrator in, in a way of this story that he's just like, oh, God, you, you don't see that she's noticed you and I can see that blah, blah, blah. And uh, and he's yeah, like orchestrating. He, exactly. Yeah, he's he's and you can also tell that he's like, why was I sent to this guy? This guy who's in the middle of this whole thing that he's go, going on. So I have to deal with this. This character, this prisoner. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's totally Quantum Leap, as we've discussed mm. before, yeah. Oh, boy. So, Roland is, like, much more observant than Eddie. He can see the... He notices the flight attendant uh, is watching him, and he not only notices that, but he can tell immediately that their conversation is completely fake, so Roland is right on top of things. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, if that's a, a real laugh, then I'm a river toad. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that, yeah, they have river toads in his world. Um, so it seems like the animals are similar, well, more or less. Different. Yeah, monstrosities mm. <laughs> don't exist in ours. Um, oh yeah, speaking of animals, uh, so he's looking at all the other planes and stuff, and he's just marveling at this, and he wants to, like control his head. He's like, "Look at the planes, they're mm. amazing." Exactly. Um, yeah. And, uh, so he says this one thing that I was like, what does that mean? Uh, they were man-made, but every bit as fabulous as the stories of the Grand Featherex, which had supposedly once lived in the distant and probably mythical kingdom of Garland. More mm. fabulous, perhaps, simply because these were man-made. So what the heck is a Grand Featherex, and where's Garland, and what? Uh, is this like a, a mythology he's heard as a boy? In context, I want to say yes. So anyway, yeah, he's just comparing it to this Grand Featherex, which is like a... I don't know. Do you, do you think it's a, a I, dragon? I'm imagining it's got to be some sort of a bird if it's got feathers. So that's what I was thinking. Probably it's some arch giant Archaeopteryx. Yeah, Archaeopteryx. Yeah, type bird. <laughs> kind of the the missing link between uh, dinosaurs and birds. Hmm. Right? 
true. Like, like I'm imagining the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm imagining like in the Flintstones type worlds, the it, is there some like giant like bird that they use like on I thought there was some sort of like plane type thing for uh, in the Flintstones because <laughs> everything was pretty much the 50s. <laughs> but their technology was still like pretty good. It was, you know, just like an alternate universe or something. Exactly. They had yeah. phones, right? Yeah, yeah they had phones. <laughs> they had uh, a dinosaur that was like a trash compactor. They had, uh, you know. <laughs> It's a living. Yeah. (laughs) They all just sort of like uh, get into their wheeled vehicles, but then just use their feet to run around. Anyway. Anyway. Why are we talking about the Flintstones? (laughs) Well, Grandfather X, Um, yeah, it all comes back back around. Oh, the Grandfather X, of course. Um, So yeah, he's marveling at these planes, but then he's also, he's getting distracted for a second. Exactly. Surprising for Roland. Well, I mean, like, anybody in a anybody in a fantasy world seeing uh, an airport where there are like hundreds of planes that seem gigantic, just sort of you know uh, taxiing around their various runways, has got to be pretty hard to I, look away from. Exactly. Yeah, I would be marveling as well. Certainly. Um, <laughs> so uh, the woman who had brought him the popkin unfastened her harness. This less than a minute since she had fastened it. And went forward to a small door. That's where the driver sits, the gunslinger thought. But when the door was open and she stepped in, he saw it apparently took three drivers to operate the air carriage. And even the brief glimpse he was afforded of what seemed like a million dials and levers and lights made him understand why. Hmm. So he's like, oh, wow, there's a lot of people in there. Yeah. Um, and they're basically they're on to us. You know, he, he knows the prisoners saw nothing. The gunslinger saw everything. The woman thought him a thief or a madman. He or perhaps it was I, yes, that's likely enough, did something to make her think that. She changed her mind, and then the other woman changed it back. Only now I think they know what's really wrong. They know he's going to try to profane the ritual. Then in a thunderclap, he saw the rest of his problem. First, it wasn't just a matter of taking the bags into his world as he had the coin. The coin hadn't been stuck to the prisoner's body with the glue string the prisoner had wrapped around and around his upper body to hold the bags tight to his skin. The glue string was only part of his problem. The prisoner hadn't missed the temporary disappearance of one coin among many. When he realized that whatever it was he had risked his life for was suddenly gone, he was surely going to raise the racks. And what then? It was more than possible that the prisoner would begin to behave in a manner so irrational that it would get him locked away in a jail as quickly as being caught in the act of profanation. The loss would be bad enough, for the bags under his arms to simply melt away to nothing would probably make him think he really had gone mad. The air carriage, ox-like now, now that it was on the ground, labored its way through a left turn. Gunslinger realized that he had no time for the luxury of further thought. He had to do more than come forward. He must make contact with Eddie Dean right now. Mm. Mm. So he's like, okay, this is urgent. And now I need to go further in my scientific uh, uh, experiment here. He's like, I can control him. Can I speak to him? Yeah, I can control him. I can (laughs) remember his memories as he's remembering them. And I can uh, just sort of sit back and watch from 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 the back. So now he has to actually make conversation. So... This is uh, the part where the book really kicks into high gear. So, uh, let's see. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Eddie tucked his declaration card and passport. In so, this is, uh, this is, sorry, section this nine. is the beginning of section nine. Mm-hmm. Section nine. Eddie tucked his declaration card and passport in his breast pocket. The steel wire was now turning steadily in his guts, sinking in deeper and deeper, making his nerves spark and sizzle. And suddenly, a voice spoke in his head. Not a thought, a voice. Listen to me, fellow. Listen carefully. And if you would remain safe, let your face show nothing, which might further rouse the suspicions of those army women. God knows they're suspicious enough already. Eddie first thought he was still wearing the airline headphones and picking up a weird transmission from the cockpit. Uh, yada, yada, yada. Uh, maybe it was some sort of transmission. And he's like, he's going through a billion different, like, uh, other theories. He's (laughs) like, straighten up, maggot. They're suspicious enough without you looking as if you've gone crazy. So, yeah. And, <laughs> Wait, hold on one second. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the thing with the fillings and the teeth—that oh, was yeah. like an actual thing. 
um, that was reported by many people, including Lucille Ball, oh. um, that they were able to. Uh, oh man, I looked this up. It was really interesting because um, basically, to make a uh, radio, um, so a radio receiver mm-hmm. is made up of an antenna, a detector to convert the radio wave to an audio signal, and a transducer, which is anything that acts like a speaker. In very rare cases, a person's mouth can act as the receiver and their body acts as the antenna. A metallic filling can act as a semiconductor that detects the audio signal, and the speaker will be something in the mouth that vibrates enough to produce noise, like bridge work or possibly or possibly a loose filling. Hmm. So like this could happen, and <laughs> like uh Lucille Ball thought she was hearing must have been hearing, um I believe her, um Morse code. Hmm. <laughs> it was like um um, they ended up tracing it back to somewhere and it was like a Russian spy or something. So interesting, pretty wild. Um, Mythbusters apparently tried to, um, they, they said they busted the, uh, the myth. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's still up in the air, but anyway, <laughs> I just thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Um, yeah. It, at least I'd heard where of, am like, I hearing this? <laughs> yeah. True, yeah. It, like, Stephen King is a master of giving people, like, uh, you know, the old uh, blob of mustard and uh, undercooked bit of beef and more of gravy than of grave uh, about you uh, type of explanations about people. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, Eddie is like, he's trying to think of some sort of like, oh, there's got to be some sort of an explanation about this. <laughs> and then right away, I just love that um, just... The last thing you said, uh, he sounds like Court. Yeah, exactly. Straight up, maggot. <laughs> He's like, all right, now I am the uh, the drill sergeant. He's the drill sergeant, maggot. Exactly. <laughs> like, so, and then after listen, that, you soft, yeah, <laughs> soft yeah. piece of garbage. Uh, so then he, we get a little bit of uh, Eddie's like quick a uh, uh, bit of Eddie's uh, childhood story. Uh, it wasn't Henry's, but it was so much like Henry's when they they had been just a couple of kids growing up in the projects. Eddie, eight years older, the sister that had been between them, now only a ghost of a memory. Selena had been struck and killed by a car when Eddie was two and Henry ten. That rasping tone of command came out whenever Henry saw him doing something that might end up with Eddie occupying a pine box before his time, as Selena had. And then just, what the hell? What the blue fuck is going on here? Uh, So then, yeah, they have this whole conversation. um, Yada, yada, yada. So so he had a sister. He had a sister. Yeah, Selena Dean, yeah. Run over by a car. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, Just like... um, Just like Jake. Just like um, Jake. And so actually, if Eddie had been... Let's see. When Henry... Oh, when Henry was 10 and Eddie was 2. So... Let's see. How old do we know? It doesn't say exactly how Selena was. This is like a word problem. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So if Eddie is Uh, what? He's about 20? 22? Uh, I forget if we've said how old Eddie is at this point yet. I think Uh, they said he was 20. Oh man, I forget. hmm. So, Um, but anyway, 18 years uh, ago. Henry's probably. Yeah, at one point he said something. like when he had first had sex or something when he was like 14 and he said it was eight years ago. Oh yeah. Think, so 22. I, I think maybe 22. So, so then this would have been, yeah. So then this would have been 20 years ago. So 20 years. So 1966. So not anything, uh, temporally related to, to Jake. I was hoping that it might've lined up that it was like right, right oh, around yeah. when Jake got uh, in his accident, <laughs> but no. Well, we said Jake was earlier, right? Cause the book was, uh yeah, Jake was. Uh, I think we're we're putting Jake around like late seventies or whenever, early eighties or so. Minutes. Yeah, but in any case, um, so the two of them are talking. You're not hearing voices that aren't there. The voice inside his head returned. No, not Henry's, Henry's voice. Older, drier, stronger, but like Henry's voice, impossible not to believe. That's the first thing. You're not going crazy. I am another person. This is telepathy. Eddie was vaguely aware that his face was completely expressionless. He thought under the circumstances that ought to qualify him for the best actor of the year Academy Award. He looked out the window and saw the plane closing in on the Delta section of Kennedy International Arrivals Building. I don't know that word, but I do know that those army women know you were carrying. There was a pause, a feeling, odder beyond telling, of phantom fingers rummaging through his brain if he were as if he were a living card catalog. 
heroin or cocaine. I can't tell which, except except it must be cocaine because you're carrying the one you don't take to buy the one you do. What army women? Oh, what army women? Eddie muttered in a low voice. He was completely unaware that he was speaking aloud. What in the hell are you talking? That feeling of being slapped once more, so real he felt his head ring with it. Shut your mouth, you damn jackass. All right, all right, Christ. Now that feeling of rummaging fingers again. <laughs> Army stewardesses, the alien voice replied. Do you understand me? I have no time to con your every thought, prisoner. What did you? And he began, then shut his mouth. What did you call me? Never mind. Just listen. Time is very, very short. They know. The army stewardesses know you have this cocaine. How could they? That's ridiculous. I don't know how they came by their knowledge, and it doesn't matter. One of them told the drivers. The drivers will tell whatever priests perform this ceremony, this clearing of customs. Uh, I'm going to stop there. Yeah. Um, maybe we can, because um, I kind of read a lot. Um, but I just thought it was really important to have that back and forth. Oh yeah. Eddie finally realized like, Oh yeah, I can't talk out loud. I have to talk in my head and, uh, Roland realizing like if he doesn't have the right word, he can just rummage around in his brain. To find it. Yeah. That's creepy. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Like not only can he like, uh, see Eddie's memories as he's remembering them, but he can also like find things like deep in Eddie's memory and pull things out. Yeah. So yeah. the, it just brings yeah. up like the whole idea of uh, the ethics of mind control and stuff like that. Very that true. Are yeah, probably the, going to happen. The capacities of this door are are immense. Yeah, and just like the <laughs> possibilities of all the things that Roland can do. Mm-hmm. With great power comes great responsibility. Indeed. So hopefully, he doesn't abuse his power mm-hmm. as he takes over these people's bodies. Um, because I'm assuming there's two more, right? This is the first of the three. First of the three trying. certainly seems like, yes. So, yeah. yeah, he's talking to Eddie, and basically Eddie's like, maybe if I just ignore it, it'll go away. And Roland's like, do not ignore it. Uh, we have to do something <laughs> now, not. or I will die. Uh, so, and then section 10 <laughs> and 11. God are you? Yeah. <laughs> he believes the gunslinger oh, yeah, thoughts, exactly. yeah. Like all the gods that ever were, that are or ever were, he believes. And section 10 is just that one sentence. I love it. Uh, (laughs) And section 11 is just the plane stopped. The fastened seatbelt light went out. The jetway rolled forward and bumped against the forward port door with a gentle thump. They had arrived. Mm. That's all of section 11. Right. Now we get to section 12. And we were thinking when we we were going to record this that we were going to stop at section 12. And I was like... I, I need to read 13. We also, gotta, so. we gotta, yeah. <laughs> we're doing 12 We could power through, yeah. We're not that <laughs> yeah. late into the, in the day. Uh, so, yeah. I think we're doing just fine. We're doing good. So, basically, yeah. So, uh, there is a place where you can put it while you perform the clearing of the customs, the voice said. A safe place. Then, while you're away, you can get it again and take it to this man, Balazar. Uh, so, basically, Roland convinces uh, Eddie to go to the bathroom and... Uh, Eddie's like, if they think I've got the dope, uh, dope, they'll think I'm trying to dump it. But uh, they wouldn't exactly break down the door because that might scare the passengers. So yada yada, Roland and Eddie get to the bathroom. Um, and <laughs> Never mind, damn you, move! Exactly. <laughs> Just love how forceful Roland is. Exactly, yeah, all caps. Eddie like, moved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Roland, with his many years and his training of mingled torture and precision, could see. And I love that they put it that way, that his, you know, his gunslinger training is, in a way, like torture and trauma. Because to do, like, that kind of, like, corporal punishment to children, it is, like, torture. Yeah. Uh But he could see the faces of the stews, the real ones, the ones hiding behind the smiles and the helpful passing of garments and garment bags and cartons stowed in the forward closet. He could see the way their eyes flicked to him, whiplash quick, again and again. So, got his bag, got his jacket, uh, says, I don't feel well, and uh, tries to go into the bathroom. I'm afraid you'll have to exit the plane, the pilot said sharply. Uh, I believe I'm going to vomit, and I don't want to do it on your shoes or mine either. Uh, second later, he was in with the door locked. Um, no, I I love this part. Um, what good was it going to do him? You know, yeah, yeah. If you're there, he thought, you better do something very quick, whoever you are. For a terrible moment, there was nothing at all. That was a short moment. But in Eddie Dean's head, it seemed to stretch out almost forever. Like the Bonomo's Turkish Tavi taffy henry had sometimes bought him in the summer when they were kids if he were bad henry beat the shit out of him 
If he were good, Henry bought him Turkish taffy. That was the way Henry handled his heightened responsibilities during summer vacation. God, oh Christ, I imagined it all. Oh, Jesus. How crazy could I have but Get ready, a grim voice said. I can't do it alone. I can come forward, but I can't make you come through. You have to do it with me. Turn around. Um, so real quick, um, I just want to go back to just that feeling because uh, we were just talking about terror and horror and revulsion. Mm-hmm. And he said for a terrible moment, mm. um, he was like, oh, no, I imagine it. Like, that was the terror. And he had all of these thoughts in that tiny moment of terror. Like, he left me. I, I imagine this whole thing. What the hell's wrong with me? I'm going to jail. Going crazy. All these yeah. going through his head. And, and finally, Roland comes back. He's like, no, I'm here. All right. I, I need you to do this. You need to come through. Uh, so... And he was suddenly seeing through two pairs of eyes, feeling with two sets of nerves. Not all the nerves of this other person were here. Parts of the other were gone, freshly gone, screaming with pain, sensing with, two, t- sensing with ten senses, thinking with two brains, his blood beating with two hearts. He turned around, there was a hole in the side of the bathroom, a hole that looked like a doorway. Through it, he could see a gray, grainy beach and waves the color of old athletic socks breaking upon it. He could hear the waves. He could smell salt, a smell as bitter as tears in his nose. Go through. Someone was stumping on the door to the bathroom, telling him to come out, and then he and that he must deplane at once. Go through, damn you. Eddie, moaning, stepped toward the doorway, stumbled, and fell into another world. Mm-hmm. That's the end of section twelve. And I was like, Kevin, we have to read section thirteen. We have to. Yeah. This is <laughs> this is such a cliffhanger. Too much of a cliffhanger Can't. to leave us on. <laughs> we can't hold on the threshold exactly (laughs) we have to move forward and see what happens next true and i Um. love that uh eddie also like we mentioned uh like earlier that when roland went through he looked over and saw that his body had kind of like fallen and cut himself on some piece Mm -hmm. of a shell or something and then when eddie uh get he got slowly to his feet aware that he had cut his right palm on an edge of shell so Eddie also is kind of bleeding a little bit from having passed through that boundary line that it's cost him in some way. So I like that yeah. it's like sort of consistent that Roland's world is sl- slightly sharper and more dangerous and causes injury yeah. every time you go through this ba- uh, this door. Uh, so because right, he's soft, you know. Exactly. There also seems to be a lot of jagged shells on this jagged beach. shells on this beach. A, yeah, a cold beach. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, this feels like a, like a Nantucket beach. Mm-hmm. Or so, beach exactly lobsters. yeah <laughs> then he saw another man rising slowly to his feet on his right eddie recoiled his feelings of disorientation and dreamy dislocation suddenly supplanted suddenly supplanted by sharp terror this man was dead and didn't know it his face was gaunt the skin stretched over the bones of his face like strips of cloth wound around slim angles of metal almost to the point where the cloth must tear itself open the the man's skin was livid save for hectic spots of red high on each cheekbone on the neck below the angle of the jaw on either side and a small circular mark between his eyes like a child's effort to replicate a hindu caste symbol Yet his eyes, blue, steady, sane, were alive and full of terrible, tenacious vitality. He wore dark clothes of some homespun material. The shirt, its sleeves rolled up, was a black, faded, almost to gray. The pants, something that looked like blue jeans. Gun belts crisscrossed his hips, but the loops were almost all empty. The holsters held guns that looked like forty-fives, but were forty-fives of an incredibly ancient vintage. The smooth wood of their hand grips seemed to glow with their own inner light. And I just love that visual description of Roland of Eddie seeing Roland for the first time, and he's like, What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell's going on? Yeah. Oh yeah. He's, and he describes he, he Describes him as a gunslinger, too, yeah. you know? <laughs> oh, man. Um, it, right? In those old spaghetti westerns? Exactly. Oh, did you get to that part? Wait, I don't think... No, I don't think I got there yet. Oh, uh, that, that comes in the next one. Yeah, in the next one. Uh, um, the arms of the man who looked like the extravagant sort of gunslinger one would only see in a spaghetti western. Uh, but it's kind of like how Roland was described to us in the beginning of The Gunslinger, right. too. Like talked about the color of his shirt and his jeans and his crisscross guns and what they're, they're made of and 
that they seem like they're older. So it's like a quick reintroduction of the gunslinger, except now he is gaunt and terrifying looking. Exactly. There's that word terror again, Kevin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, we're, see- we're seeing him through the- Eddie's eyes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I looked up actually. Uh, so Spaghetti Western is in reference to the fact that uh, most of the old uh, Sergio Leone uh, Westerns were shot in Italy. So that's why they called them Spaghetti Westerns. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. The good, the bad, and the ugly for a few dollars more. And uh, what was the third? Um, the man with no name, I want to call it. Uh, Clint Eastwood ones. Yeah, the Clint Eastwood ones. Yeah. Those were shot in Italy, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and a lot Very of the time, the basically since they were going to overdub the whole thing, they just had all of the actors speaking their own native language. So I, it, on set, as you were recording, it must have sounded absolutely insane. And the director was like, "Nah, just say it how you would say it. <laughs> we're just going to overdub it later. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Mm. Yeah, overdubbing—you can always tell. You, know, you can like, oh, that definitely match up. Yeah, <laughs> or like this um, the audio quality sounds different on this than it does in the rest of it. Yeah. Um, real quick, wait—I wanted to go back to something that we were talking about. Um, even before in back in the end of section twelve, um, you could sense with ten senses, two brains, mm. two hearts. Like, so that got me thinking, like. So they're like superhuman now, kind of like they, they can see more than. Um, well, I'm saying the, the Eddie Dean and Roland conglomerate together. I suppose so, sort of like Steven Steven Universe, you know? Exactly. Yeah, it is together. kind of fusion. <laughs> uh, basically, well, I, I feel like it's more just that they're almost like like uh, doubled up at the moment, and they're like. Uh, what, what did I want to say? Um, basically, it, it kind of makes me feel like. Um, you know, as Roland is fully sort of like, it seems like he's kind of giving Eddie control in this moment. So Eddie kind of is feeling all the things that Roland had been feeling this whole time of, uh, you know, kind of feeling both of their bodies. So now Eddie is the one right. who has to kind of willingly walk through the door. Okay. Um, so then my question is, so then Roland can't walk into their world? Well, where he hasn't just stepped far enough forward to actually walk, because Eddie just walked into Roland's world. True, right? Yeah. The well, I mean, we'll see. We'll cross that bridge when oh, we get Roland to it. Yeah, he's like dying on on the ground. Exactly. Also. Yeah. Roland so can't. Yeah, walk. Roland left his body behind, more or less. So, uh, yeah, we'll see if we can uh, if we can have Roland physically walk into uh, 1986 uh, New York uh, later on. Yeah, but oh, Roland's not looking good. Not Very looking good. Gaunt. Yeah, and he's like, "Are you a ghost?" Like the, yeah, I was thinking like the Crypt Keeper kind of uh, mm. <laughs> tales from the Crypt. Exactly. Yeah, Roland um, has been yeah starved past uh, starvation, and he's barely has enough food or water to exist, let alone live. So he is just skin and bones. Um, yeah, a small gust of wind could uh, just knock him over. Mm-hmm. So, and he's um, like, your arms, and he can see all of the blood poisoning, and uh, the devil was doing more than breathing up your ass. He was already crawling up the sewers that led to your pumps. Never mind my fucking arms, <laughs> the pallet apparition to- told him. Take off your shirt and get rid of it. Uh, so, uh, he heard voices. He, oh, he heard only the lonely hoot of wind that knew no obstruction. He saw this mad dying man and nothing else but desolation. Yet from behind him, he heard the murmuring voices of deplaning passengers and a steady muffled pounding. Mr. Dean, that voice, he thought, is in another world. You'll really have to. You could leave it and pick it up later, the gunslinger croaked. Gods, don't you understand? I have to talk here. It hurts. And there is no time, you idiot. Uh, so, so him talking is because he had no water and he's just completely parched. Yeah, totally yeah. parched, and he's he's horribly sick. So, yeah, Roland has fallen apart, and so, but I, yeah, I'm actually a little bit. Go ahead. No, I was just saying that <laughs> Roland is much more focused on the task at hand. He's just like, take the thing off. You have to do it right now, right now, right now. <laughs> There's no time for questions. Exactly. No time to explain. Just do it. No time for love, Doctor um, Jones. So I. <laughs> uh, I think Eddie is actually handling this pretty well. Hmm. Uh, he's like, "What the fuck?" Is it? <laughs> okay, all right, but like, really, he's thinking all these. This stuff. I can still hear them. They're in another world. He says, yep. "Oh my gosh, there's no time, idiot." 
There were men Eddie would have killed for using such a word, but he had an idea that he might have a job killing this man, even though the man looked like killing might do him good. Yet he sensed the truth in those blue eyes. All questions were canceled in their mad glare. And he began to unbutton his shirt. His first impulse was to simply tear it off like Clark Kent while Lois Lane was tied to a railroad track or something. But that was no good in real life. Sooner or later, you had to explain those missing buttons. So he slipped them through the loops while the pounding behind him went on. Um, so he takes everything off and uh, you realize that the, the Coke is strapped to him with, what, what do you call it for? Glue string? Yeah, because Roland, I guess, duh, his world doesn't have uh, a word for tape. So, yeah, but that is, well, that is exactly what that is exactly duct what duct tape, tape is. is. Yeah, it's just strings that are <laughs> so, glued and with, uh, with the plastic of, backing. Yeah, yeah. So, well, uh, sussed indeed. Roland, Roland, very um, uh, yeah, perceptive. Yeah. So uh, he looked like a man in the last stages of recovery from badly fractured ribs. It's a very good way to describe that. Mm. Um, yeah, just covered in strapping tape with just like kilos of cocaine all over his chest. Uh, so, um, so he's basically looking through the doorway from both sides, sort of, and he's looking in the mirror and from the mirror, he can see Roland behind him is, it seems like some sort of, uh, infinite mirror trick or something. That's exactly. Yeah. Through the doorway, <laughs> he saw the first class head, the basin, the mirror, and in it, his own desperate face, black hair spilled across his brow and over his hazel eyes. In the background, he saw the gunslinger at the beach and soaring seabirds that screeched and squabbled over God knew what. Like, I just love the visual description of all of these things. Like, it's so cool. Uh-huh. Like, looking through a door, seeing a mirror, and then through the mirror, you see the door again and himself and then rolling behind him and then the beach behind that so it is just yeah uh-huh. that uh, infinite uh, description you were just talking about yeah oh feels like a like an escher painting exactly yeah <laughs> worlds within worlds within worlds worlds within, within worlds eyes, yeah my goodness oh, yeah awesome. it has taken william wilson the man whose po- whose name poet made famous 20 minutes to strap him up they would have the, the door to the first class bathroom open in five seven at most I can't get this shirt off, he told the swaying man in front of him. I don't know who you are or where I am, but I'm telling you, there's too much tape and too little time. So that is the cliffhanger that we'll be leaving off this week. Uh, Okay, we are leaving on a cliffhanger, but at least I was like, I just want to see if he makes it through the door. Exactly. I I just want to see uh, Eddie seeing Jake, uh, (laughs) Eddie seeing Roland for the first time. Uh, Wait, real quick. uh, In my book, it says I can't get this shit off. You say shirt? Oh no, it does say shit. Yeah, sorry, I was I was <laughs> uh, self uh, self censoring. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get this shirt off. <laughs> what the duck? <laughs> some bad melon farmers. Who cares about my ducking arms? <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, and we talked about William Wilson, right? The yes, po- we did. Uh, yeah, po- the the Poe poem yeah. where basically it was uh, it turned out to be his own conscience all along, and then. And he killed his conscience. I think he was killing himself, more or less, as he was trying to do all of these, mm-hmm. like, dastardly deeds, but William Wilson wouldn't let him do it. Did we talk about... Um, I, I probably am getting this wrong in my little bit of research, but the Bindi? Is that what it's called? Uh, I believe um, so, yeah. Do you remember the, the, the thing on the, the top of the head, like the Hindu caste symbol, as they said? Mm. Um a single single circular mark between the eyes, like a child's effort to replicate a Hindu caste symbol. Um, so that, that represents what the third eye, right? And that eye like looks inward. This uh, is what I was reading. According to what I'm seeing, it says in Hinduism, it's part of the suhag or lucky trousseau at marriages and is affixed to a girl's forehead on her wedding and thereafter always worn. Unmarried girls optionally wore smaller ornamental spangles. A widow was not allowed to wear bindi or any ornamentation associated with married women. So it, it it's true. I have seen uh, like way more uh, Hindu women with uh, bindi on their heads rather than men. So, but I've also seen men with, you know, the... Um the circular mark there. You have? I, him, I, right? I don't think so, I have. Hmm. Huh. I must have. Or is it only women? Now I'm not sure. But it seems like it's not just Hindu. It I mean, a like, Bindi uh, specifically. Jainism and yeah, Buddhism. Bindi specifically is uh, uh, indicative of 
uh, a married Hindu woman. Okay. Well, there's something with the third eye looking inward um, uh, on, you know, religion or something. Uh, Spiritual self. You are correct. Uh, So, according to PewResearch.org, a decorative mark on the forehead worn by Hindi women and other members of some other religious groups, traditionally believed to be venerating an energy center of the human body representing the third eye, but also worn as an adornment or a sign of marriage. So, it's kind of both. Yeah. So I guess probably so like... has this on his forehead? Essentially, yeah, as part of just his, like, blood poisoning That's he's just got these livid red dots all over him. Oh, okay. Ah. Anyway, I was just looking that up, and I, my apologies to our um, Hindu listeners because I'm sure I true. There, I feel like don't we don't have it correct. We do need to have just a running segment on our show of the, all the things we get wrong because we do almost every single show get uh, consecutively oh, sure things wrong all the time. And yeah, I was listening. I'm like, ooh, there's lots of errors. We should definitely uh, make that a thing at the end. Be like, okay, in episode one, we said this. That is not true. Not true at all. <laughs> <laughs> so we quoted uh, the Bible and said this, but apparently that's not what it means whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we're just sort of talking here. We're just guys. Uh, just I mean, to read, read this book together. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we are two brothers just having a good time talking to each other. We are by no means experts or, and you should uh, consider none of our opinions to be uh, experts in any way, shape or form. <laughs> no, absolutely not. We're just having fun. <laughs> We're just talking and right. hoping that you enjoy what we say. That's the goal. Um, Cool. So uh, what should we read up to next? All right. So next week, let's see how much is left in this chapter. I think we can go to the end. Yeah, I think we could get to the end of chapter three. So, yeah, read up. Yeah. So stop at the end of chapter three and then we'll just write it straight to how it goes. So, yeah. I just saw the name of chapter four for the first time. Indeed. (laughs) Cool. But we'll we'll save that for, for our listeners for next time. See you for next time. Um, all right, cool. Well, until next time, uh, you can check us out on Facebook, Chapter Brothers Podcast, um, uh, ChapterBrothers.com, uh, YouTube, your various uh, podcast apps. Indeed. And, and things. the more people reach out to us through Facebook, the more we will do on Facebook. So if you want to engage with <laughs> us, then we will engage more with you back. Uh, if you enjoy all the pictures that Nick's been putting up, as I do, the you know, uh, give him a like, give him a comment, uh, just say hi. Yeah, we're uh, we're cool people. Indeed, talk to us. And, yeah, and tell us tell us when we've been wrong. Indeed, we'll yes. Uh, the as uh, Socrates says, the only way to enlightenment is to know thyself, and the only way to know yourself is know all the things that you do wrong. That's the only way to improve. Absolutely. I agree with that, Kev. Hmm. Um, All right. But until next week, Kevin, long days and pleasant nights. And may you have twice the number. I love you, brother. I love you, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.